So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. And here is what we have coming up today. A minister says something stupid and we have to go chasing after him that day and try and actually get to the bottom of it. That's news. The rest of it's just a drama. All political careers end in failure and with a man called Gobby shouting at you. I meet the cameraman who taunts presidents. Prime Ministers. Often when we talk about submissive and dominant power dynamics, the assumption is that someone will want to receive pay. That's Alex Fox on why domination doesn't mean degradation. We'll bring you our record of the week and Ollie Peart's homemade fermented yoghurt. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, let's open our virtual mailbag and look at your letters. Hello, Amy, who is listening in the gym, and James, who says he enjoys the little format tweaks we've been making this season. Uh, He says the intro, particularly, is much slicker. Uh, I might be about to ruin that, James, but uh, thank you. Uh, Hello as well to Fiona, who's been in touch regarding my interview with Dr. Stew last week. Uh, She says, I was listening on my birthday, bemoaning how old I am, when Stuart was talking about being grateful for every day, as you never know when one might be your last. It made me realise how lucky I am to be growing old, and how I should appreciate that, instead of worrying about how old I am now. Uh, Yes, Fiona, and happy birthday. Uh, It's really lovely to get a note like that because, uh, you know, the thing I really love the most about making this show is taking you all somewhere completely different each week, introducing you to a new person who has a fascinating story, but it's someone you've probably never heard of before. And frankly, you just have to trust us that it will be interesting and go with it. And then it's amazing when that actually has a real-world impact on how you think. Um, Because that, of course, is what meeting these remarkable people face-to-face does for me. Um, So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Uh, Thank you as well to Manfan Bryce, who had her credit card stolen over the weekend. Now, she wrote to me one day later to request that I move her beer money donation over to her new credit card, which, as far as I'm concerned, is getting your priorities straight. (laughs) Don't worry about whether you can pay for your train fare, Bryce. Just make sure you continue to support the podcast. Now, if, like Bryce, you can afford to do that, please do consider setting up a monthly payment equivalent to the cost of just one pint of beer. Come on, one pint of beer. Uh, All the details are on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Click Beer Money. Uh, And if you click Feedback, that's where you can send me your letters for next week's show, or we're on Twitter, at The Modern Man. Uh, Right, in this episode, you will learn which first lady of British politics drove a silver mini metro. You will learn who Clarice Leclatterbollock was, and you'll learn why you should always chat to chauffeurs. 
Let's go. Time for the zeitgeist in which your listener-submitted trends are tested by one intrepid man, and that man is Ollie Pitt. Welcome. I am intrepid. I like that. Yeah? What's yeah. the most intrepid thing you've done today? It's a train strike, so I had to go to Bournemouth, change... Four hours to get from Dorset to London. Wow, it's like fucking Shackleton. Last week, uh, man fan Cass tasked you with making your own kefir. Mm-hmm. Talk me through your journey. In my head, I just thought well, I was sort of a yogurty drink, I guess. So like yop. But with kefir, after my googling, it's essentially a fermented drink. Right. So does that mean it's left to mature then? Like beer or cheese exactly and the way that you make it is you need to get what are called kefir grains so online i googled kefir grains to go and find some found some where on on amazon on the website as well the kefir grains are in like this box branding on it through my letterbox jiffy bag i open it there's a tiny little sachet with what looked like spunk in it. And you've got it confused and then with I... all the drugs you order on the dark web exactly yeah so i read through the instructions and what you're supposed to do is you you put it in a pot or a sterilised jar, uh-huh. and then you add some milk, cover it with a muslin cloth. But you still, at this point, don't know what it is. You've no. just been on Amazon and ordered it. No, yeah, exactly. Did your curiosity not extend to, at least for the benefit of the listeners, finding out what it was? So, right, the grains themselves are the active ingredient, the yeast. This is <laughs> like blood from a stone. <laughs> no, this is true. This is what I'm you want. I'm sure it's true. I just want to learn something. Yeah, blood, yeah. You, no, you're going to learn something. Okay. That is the active ingredient that <laughs> ferments the milk. But what is it? What is it? It, what is it? It's a slow-acting yeast. Okay. It means nothing to me either. No, like, no, it, I mean, I know roughly what a yeast it's is. It's a living organism, and you put it in the in the milk, and it, they actually grow, and they end up looking a little bit like cauliflower. And where do you where do you leave it to mature? Just Wh- on the side. You don't put it in the fridge or anything. You can put it in a jar, put muslin cloth over the top. Room temperature. Put, room temperature. Okay. In fact, if it's slightly warmer, then it will ferment faster, and it'll be ready faster. Okay. And here it is. This is 24 hours later. Look at it. What a miraculous transformation. That doesn't look like ejaculate at all. Have you tasted it? Yeah, I've tasted it. You should try it. Okay. Here it is. Okay, I'm going to sniff it first. Are you always... You're not going to die. Unless you're allergic. Oh, that is strong, Christ. It smells live, doesn't it? I'd go as far to say, like, if I had a normal pot of yoghurt, like, just standard issue Tesco Greek-style yoghurt mm-hmm. in the fridge, and I opened it and that smell came out of it, that's when it would go in the bin. Always drinking it. It tastes like normal yoghurt, I would say. That's because... Yeah, oh. <laughs> that's not mine. Ah. I didn't make that. Did you go to Waitrose and buy some kefir? Because that wasn't the challenge. Holland and Barrett, actually. Right, okay. <laughs> it tastes perfectly decent. This... I'm glad my instincts haven't left me. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is brought... my kefir. You've just brought some kefir back. It looks like the severed head of Yasser Arafat that you've just produced <laughs> in the room. <laughs> It does, doesn't it? Um, it's got like a towel hanging down from a jar. Yeah, so, so you know I said muslin cloth? Yes. Who has one of them? Sure. No one. Right. Tea towel. Next best option. <laughs> this is a beetroot jar. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, my okay. God. So I'm just going to open it up for you. I'm worried it's going to explode. Before we proceed any further, can we take a picture of this and it can go on the website? Right, I will put that picture on the blog post associated with this particular episode so you can see why I just laughed. I'm just going to undo the jar. I had to put the lid on for the journey. Oof. There you go. Okay. Now, as you can see... I mean, it's the fact that it's in a sliced pickled beetroot jar that makes it look so appetising as well. Yeah, and basically... It looks like milk, actually. Yeah, there's a reason. You know I said that the grains go into the milk and they grow. Mm. The grains are, in fact, reusable. So what you're supposed to do is put the grains in, pour the milk in, Mm -hmm. 
leave it, mm-hmm. and then drain it through a sieve mm-hmm. and get the grains out, and that's your kefir. Mm-hmm. But when you first get the grains, it can take days. And I thought it would take 24 hours. I want to put it down as a success, but I obviously haven't succeeded. So how far can one batch of grains go? Two to seven times. So the price is actually quite analogous to buying it in a bottle, isn't it? I mean, how much was the Holland & Barrett one? That's one ninety nine, and that is a 250ml bottle. So okay. two, So actually, so seven of those, 14 quid. Yep. I mean, look, it's half price making your it's own. It's about half the price. But it's not a massive saving. Nah, well, yeah, but you get more for your money because there is a more diverse range of microbials in your homemade stuff than there is in the shop-bought stuff. So is it good for you, this stuff, or is it bollocks? No, it is really good for you. Why? It's, What's it doing? It's got loads of probiotic bacteria in it. It rebuilds your gut bacteria. So if you take antibiotics, for example, that can kill off some of that bacteria. Okay. So it can replenish your gut bacteria, which is beneficial to all aspects of your body. I sound like I'm selling this stuff. I'm not, but it is generally... No, you're not yet. That wasn't part of the challenge. It's generally good I for wouldn't, you. I don't think you'd get very far if you did try and sell it, particularly not in that packaging. <laughs> you get chucked <laughs> off the train. So would you be growing kefir yoghurt again at home, do no. you think? No. No, I'm going to buy it. Excellent. Okay, and uh, now let's check in on your challenge for the series. You mm-hmm. have nine weeks yep. to write a Christmas song. How has that been going? I spoke to a chap called Chris Lockery, who okay. has investigated the science behind the perfect Christmas song. So he's broken down all of the, not all of the Christmas songs, but a, a large swathe of them, and looked for key elements to each of those songs that make them a successful Christmas song. So he's like the perfect guy to talk to. So I gave him a call and I said, look, you know, this is my plan. I want a Christmas number one. Yeah. What do I need to do? What's, what <laughs> needs to be in there? Sure. And he gave me a few top tips. So yeah, Call mid-year and fuck off. Th- no, no, he was really helpful. He okay. said almost all Christmas songs, without exception, are in a major key. Yeah, well, happy time of year, isn't it? Don't sound so like, oh, yeah, well, I knew that. No, I'm not. I'm, I mean, there are occasionally like morose Christmas number ones, aren't they? Like, what's that one that was the Tears for Fears cover? You know, I find it kind of funny. I find it kind of sad. Yeah, good well, voice. That, yeah. yeah, but was that a Christmas song or just a Christmas number one? Oh, I see. Yeah, like Stay Another Day, that's a song that just happened to come out at Christmas time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it was so, a Christmas number one. Both kind of right. Christmas songs in a major key. Fine. Anyway, this is a Christmas song. It's got to be in a major key. So yeah. this is going to be in a major key. Yeah. So next thing was I asked him about was instrumentation. What's going to be in there? Three things. Jingle bells. Yes. Chimes. Yes. And tambourines. Okay. He then asked me what type of Christmas song that I wanted to do. So what genre? Because he said there are three main genres of Christmas song. There Thrash metal. Carols. Yeah. Jazz style. Really? Yeah. Like so, what? Jazz nuts roasting. That's jazz, right? Sure. And what's the third category? Pop. I mean, pop, yes. Yeah, pop. I think let's go pop. And then the last thing was the time signature. So I just assumed could pop song 4-4. But what Chris Wow, actual musical vocabulary going on. I'm a drummer. I'm yeah, a drummer. I'm not. So, like, I don't know what a time signature is, really. I okay. know it's to do with how many beats are in a Well, song. that's like one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Uh-huh. But what Chris has said, if you want a successful Christmas song, yeah. is 12-8. Okay, I don't know what that means, but I'm excited by that factoid. So it's kind of like a Bavarian-type umpar time signature. So it's like... Do, 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 do. Christmas time, Christmas time. Time, do, 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 do. <laughs> it's a bit like that. 
It's like ploddy. Wow, that's a hit. No, but that already. sounds bad. Oh, no, I mean you've got the chorus. But you know what I mean? That kind of sounds quite Christmassy, right? It, yeah, yeah. No, As in, that, I'll tell you what it sounded like a bit when you just did that. It sounded like the one that goes. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. like that one. But it didn't sound like Band Aid or Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. No. I would go pop music with an um papa bridge. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to go full on Bavarian right. with the bloody lederhosen on. Sure. I'm going to just have that as the time signature with some kind of like, you know, jingles, a major key with an umpar kind of rhythm to it. It's going to be sexy, going to be loud. It's going to look great, sound great. And you, you're going to love it. It's going to be great. I don't know whether to be excited that you're embracing this challenge or nervous that I'm witnessing your breakdown. Uh, here's your challenge for next week's show. It's from Manfan Deck, who says, My friend is obsessed with car wrapping videos on YouTube. Mm. I'd love to see Ollie investigate that trend and get his own car wrapped. This is wrapped with a W. Do you know what he's talking about? Isn't this where you, 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 you literally wrap a car in some plastic that can be printed with any kind of design or whatever it is? Yeah, that's it. Right. You want me to get my car wrapped? Well, I don't want you to. Deck wants you to. He, right. He just assumes that I've got a car that I can get fucking wrapped. Do you have a car? Yes. But what I'm is the, it? The Peugeot 206. Okay. From year, roughly? Mm, 2002. Okay. So, I mean, car wrapping's not going to diminish its value greatly, is it, really? Oi! I'm just saying. But I presume wrapping a car probably costs a few hundred quid. You might even add to its value. Ooh, I might just have my face on it. Lovely. Well, Ollie, as you drive off into the sunset, uh, man fans, prepare yourself. You are about to meet Gobby. My interview with Paul is coming up next. But first, we move seamlessly on to our brand new record of the week. It's the latest from Joseph J. Jones. It's called Put the Word Out, and it's out now on Communion Records. How'd you get the new black guy? Somebody ain't trying to look after you. Knocking on my door midnight. Somebody should treat you right like I do You can tell me anything Take it slow, but you know I can't Promise I won't do something Cause she can't hold me back when it all kicks off All the bruises I can't fix them But come forget about your troubles laying here Now, if you, like me, go to bed each night having watched the news at 10, consider how many times in your life have you heard the phrase, are you going to resign, minister? (laughs) Just last night, I was watching the budget and the first thing broadcast in the news package was the sound of a man off camera hollering at the Chancellor of the Exchequer as he walked out with his red briefcase, is this your budget, Chancellor, or the Prime Minister's? Now, in that context... It's a ridiculous question that the Chancellor is never going to respond to. So why bother asking it? To find out, I went to meet the now-retired master of the political doorstep, Paul Lambert, a.k.a. Gobby. For a brief spell, he worked as a communications director, but for years before that, he was a producer and cameraman for the BBC, who became legendary in Westminster for barking out the questions no one else would dare ask. I actually started many, many years ago as an electrician on the floor at Television Centre, just setting lights for Top of the Pops and all of that sort of thing. And then I made my way through from electrician to 
sound recordist I'd used. Then I went to Westminster and they brought in a thing called Multi Skilling, which was where I was a cameraman stroke producer. Did you ever harbour ambitions in that direction then? Not really until I, until I got there. But you were stationed on Downing Street? You'd get sent to Downing Street or you'd get sent, if they were short of camera crews and they needed a shot of a minister coming out of a building somewhere, you'd get, oh, go and stand around the Home Office for a couple of hours see if you can get a shot of whoever the Home, home Office minister was at that time. It's a weird thing, isn't it? Because in a way, a shot of what is normally a middle-aged white guy from behind walking into a building looks much the same as it did the week before. And yet people want the fresh shots because any little detail of it could be telling the story. But that was a really, really good grounding for what I went on to do. Because I'd, I'd, I'd be hanging outside the front of the Home Office or the Foreign Office or the Department of Health... And you'd see people going in and out. And because you were there so often, people would sort of... You'd sort of start, oh, hello, how are you? And they'd sort of start coming to talk to you. And that made life a lot easier because all of a sudden you'd say, oh, any idea when the Home Secretary's coming out? Oh, they'll be out in 20 minutes. Well, to be fair, you could always go and get a coffee then because you know they're not going to be out, out for another 20 minutes. So you've got 10 minutes, go and get a coffee. The funny thing is... You got to know who you could trust and who you couldn't trust. The nicest people were the people that would say, I just can't tell you at the moment. Then you knew something was up. You knew there was a problem. <laughs> and you knew you had to go hunting a bit harder. I'd made friends with Shuri Blair during the early years of the Blair campaign. And we'd got a bit of a personal relationship in that she knew who I was. I knew she was the Prime Minister's wife. And we got... You know, quite friendly. I don't know. I can't imagine. So, I mean, you're basically camped outside her house. How's that the grounding for a good relationship? There was a very, very silly occurrence in Downing Street one day in that Cherie came out in the early years and she had a little silver mini metro and she used to go to work as a lawyer. Go into the car and it wouldn't start. Sort of, the battery was nearly there, but it wasn't quite there. And I was still a cameraman at the time. And I said, can I help? She said, oh, it won't start, it won't start. I said, hang on a minute. Jumped over the barrier, managed to get in the car, managed to get it started. <laughs> she went, oh, thank you very much. I said, tell him to buy you a new battery. She said, he's won't, he's too tight. And off she went. And she, But they were the sort of relationships that you managed to build up with people. I, I've never seen Cherie Blair's Mini Metro on the news. So is that just parked slightly off where the cameras are allowed to point? What's the deal there? The, there is a deal in the private cars you don't. You don't film it, it. There's another. There's another deal as well. In that, if you notice, on all the news pieces, the um, registration numbers of the cars, if they are in shot, are blurred out. Mm. That's a security thing, mm. and we all abide by it. In the later years, we we're at a conference in, I think it was Brighton, mm-hmm. and I noticed that Cherie had a book signing. And it was about the time when the entire cabinet had endorsed uh, Gordon Brown as the next leader of the Labour Party, apart from one man, by the way, John Red. And I just thought, what, what Cherie thinks? So I just grabbed one of our camera crews and went up to the book sign. And Cherie said, um, hello, how are you? I said, all right, Cherie. I said, how are you? I said, what are you going to do when Tony gives up? She said, darling, that's a long way in the future. <laughs> Luckily, she didn't say it to anyone else that day. 
and didn't talk to anyone else that day. And that made the front page of seven national newspapers. Did you so know as soon as you heard that, that's a news line? I knew immediately. I'm not so sure my news editor knew because I came back and he said, um, I said, oh, I've got a clip with Cherie. She said, Tony's not giving up for a long time. Oh, yeah, throw it in the box with the other tapes. We'll have a look at it later. And I thought, hmm, I think it's worth a bit more than that. One of my friends, her boyfriend, happened to be one of the reporters on PA, which is the Press Association. And I said, um, can you contact your boyfriend? I've got tape I want to show him. Just we'll see what he thinks. Come and listen to it in one of our suites. And he said, uh, yeah, can I write that up? I went, yeah, go on then. I think I got the interview about half ten, eleven. It made PA by about 12. It was the lead story on the one o'clock news all of a sudden. So maybe the BBC needed to trust its own journalists more than it trusts the Press Association sometimes. When did you start seeing yourself as a journalist? I'm not sure I ever saw myself as a serious policy journalist. I'd see myself more as a tabloid journalist that happened to work for the BBC. And there's not very many of those, is there? I think I mean, it's something the BBC's frightened of. I actually think the BBC's frightened of breaking stories. The BBC's quite frightened, it seems to me, of populism, really. I mean, it, not in entertainment, but I mean, well, I say not in entertainment, look at what happened with Jeremy Clarkson. It, it doesn't like figures that seem to be with a finger on the populist pulse. It doesn't like figures that don't cow down to the BBC's ethos. A story, again, that happened at conference. This was actually at Blair's last conference. Bill Clinton had come over. Clinton is probably the most charismatic man I've ever met. Mm. Anyway, um, Blair did his big speech, and I positioned myself with a camera crew on the way where all the dignitaries walked back, and I was at a live camera again for the BBC's news channel, as it was then. I happened to see Clinton walking back, so I just shouted out, Oi, Bill, you're going to miss Tony. And he came over and started telling us stories about himself and Blair and how he enjoyed it, which an absolute coup for the news channel. Hold on. At what point do you think it's appropriate when your footage is being beamed live to the news channel to say, Oi, Bill, to a former president of the USA? That's exactly what I got from the BBC. I think it's appropriate to say, Oi, Bill when it means he's going to come over and talk to us. If I'd have said, excuse me, President, do you think you'd like to have a word with the BBC? Do you think you'd have come over? I don't. Is that how you started getting your nickname, Gobby? That's exactly how I got my nickname. There was one at uh, one of the budget statements. Um, George Osborne was just about to leave and he's up there holding the box up and it was when money was a bit short. So I just shouted out, any money in the box, Chancellor? <laughs> Which made all the, all the cameramen laugh, and I think it even got a chuckle out of Osborne at the time. Is that what you're looking for, a reaction? You're looking for a reaction. There, there are some shouts that you want as stoppers, when, when you want to stop someone dead, and they've <laughs> got to answer it. Is a stopper like, are you going to resign, Prime Minister? Or is that, because you know when you ask that, they're going to carry on walking, they're not going to stop. Uh, there's probably one about money, like, did you really embezzle that money? It would be something that, Someone's got to react to. Or I guess in budget terms, like, you know, I don't know, are you stealing from the children or yeah. whatever? are you stealing from the children? Some, something that someone's got to react to. Well, how did you feel when you were asking those questions? 
It, it, it all depends what sort of relationship you had with people. Like, I can always remember a very early morning doorstep with a former Home Secretary, Charles Clark. Mm-hmm. I'd had the privilege of having a chat with his chauffeur before he picked <laughs> That's Charles That's a sentence you very often. Who <laughs> happened to tell me that Mr. Clark had been offered his resignation to Blair the night before. And you got that information from the chauffeur? I got that from the chauffeur. Before anybody else? I don't think... Well, obviously Blair knew. Yeah, well, Charles yeah. Clark knew, I didn't mean literally anybody else. Any other journalist, any, yeah. Well, there wasn't any other journalist there at six o'clock in the morning. Charles Clark comes out of his house. And it was a question that I thought might be a stopper, but it turned out not to be. But it did make the headline of the six o'clock news that night. Well, I just asked Charles Clark whether he'd still be Home Secretary that night. Okay, so that's a classic one. And he wasn't. You're basically responsible for that, aren't you? I don't remember before you the thing of, are you still going to be Home Secretary this evening, Mr. Clark, being a thing you saw in a clip on the six o'clock news. Whereas now, and it's become something the political correspondents themselves do, isn't it? It's the scripted part of the piece. Like, they start with a clip of the political correspondent outside saying... How are the Brexit negotiations going, Prime Minister? And you know they're going to walk past and not say anything, but it's become, it's become an essential part of the news package. That's your yeah, fault. But, 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 the, <laughs> but the unfortunate thing with it is they can't afford to upset the ministers. I don't need to get the next interview. Actually, I won't get the next interview, so, so I can upset them. So do you ever see yourself as someone who's claiming scalps, in a way? I mean, Charles Clark then resigned that evening... No, that were there others? Bit, that wasn't down to me. I might have helped a little bit, but it wasn't down to me. But you were always there. You must have felt a bit like death sometimes. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're waiting around waiting for them to come out to shout at them before everyone else knows they're about to lose their job. John Reid said to me, Paul, I always know when I'm in the shit. You're outside my front door. And it was true. But again, John was a brilliant politician in that... I always remember a time I'd gone round, I don't, know, I don't know whether John had done something one day and we needed a clip out of him. And I was straight round, because he lived just round the corner from Parliament. I was outside his house with the camera crew. And all of a sudden, his close protection officers drew up. And they went, Paul, can we have a word? So I walked over and I said, John wants to know what you want, because he's going to dinner with his wife and he's in his dinner suit. And if he's got to respond, he'll change out of his dinner suit in a normal <laughs> suit. Come out, do your clip, and then go. I said, I'll tell you it's about this. Because I thought, well, if I don't tell him what it is, I'm not going to get anything. So anyway, the post protection officer comes back and he says, uh, yeah, he'll just get, he's just getting changed into a normal suit. He'll be out, but he can't, he can't give you long because he's got to go to this dinner. I said, OK, fine. So John was what you'd call a sensible politician in that he knew that he'd going to have to respond at some point, so he might as well do it now. Yeah, but he's he's managing that news, isn't he? You you need to ask him a difficult question. He doesn't want to be in a dinner suit, so he's managing it. So it's it's a manipulation of what is really happening. What's really happening is he's going somewhere in his dinner suit, but that won't make the news. No, it would have got it would have made the news if he'd gone somewhere in his dinner suit. But the trouble is, he looked the image he wanted to look. Mm. Which, if I'm going to get the clip, and I need the clip for the news base, I'm prepared to live with that. Well, I don't know. I suppose the classic one is. Um, Tony Blair holding the mug with his kids on it because the public noticed that they were being manipulated. That's but, when it all falls down, isn't it? But the whole of Westminster news is managed to a certain extent. Politics is different from any other form of news because you are relying 
on people telling you things. Someone's got to tell you something. The biggest story that everyone ever missed was John Major's alleged affair. Hmm. With Edwina. No one knew about that. And it just showed you what a tight-knit community that Major must have had around him for no one to have known about that. Do you have the famous filing cabinet full of stories on people? No. no. You, has it I've all, used mine. It's all come out? Yeah. There's very, very little conspiracy around Westminster. There's an awful lot of cock-up, but there's very little conspiracy. So chauffeurs is one source. Chauffeurs and coppers was the other source. Mm. The close protection officers. Like, with chauffeurs, people, ministers, forgot they were there. I think they thought the cars were driving themselves. Some of these people go out, they go to late-night parties, the chauffeurs don't get home till very late, they get a bit fed up, they're all talking amongst themselves. A conversation that happened in the back of the car will come out. Mm. I mean, you mentioned a parallel between the White House and Downing Street before. It's impossible to imagine that the president's chauffeur wouldn't be signing an NDA, isn't it? And yet in the UK, is it really that ramshackle that the person who's driving the top ministers... They probably signed NDAs, but the truth is they're probably... They're only normal people. Yeah. And like, if you're sitting down having a cup of tea with them, they won't tell you a whole story, but they might point you in the right direction. Sitting down and having a cup of tea, that's interesting because that's something that a lot of people moving into the media now do not have the time to do or think they don't. The idea of going out making contacts with someone who's like a chauffeur for a politician, they'll say, no, if you want the gossip of what's going on inside Westminster, get on Twitter, wait for someone to DM you. Absolute rubbish. I recently did a chat to some American students. We were talking and I said... What's the most important thing you think about journalism? And they were all going Twitter, Facebook, all kinds of new media. And I went, and we went on for about 10 minutes. And I went, you're forgetting something. And they've all looked at me, what? I said, talk to people. People tell you stories that aren't going to be on Twitter, aren't going to be on Facebook, and aren't going to be anywhere else in the news media. They're what you need. Because... If it's on Twitter, it's old anyway. Build relationships with people. This is where, because the media has shrunk, and there are less people working in the media, I think, now than there probably ever used to be, especially in mainstream media anyway. Mm. I think people are finding that they haven't got, or they don't think they've got the time to spare. I was quite lucky in that when I was at working at Westminster, if there wasn't a big story going on, I could take myself over to one of the numerous cafes in the we- in Westminster, and just sit there and talk to people. Yeah, that's unthinkable now, isn't it? Talk for a producer on, you know, on a news channel, they're going to be having to be. crank out five stories a day. And but it shouldn't be. Mm. Perhaps this is why we're now getting a much more managed media than we've ever had before. Like, I'll be truthful. I didn't like budgets or autumn statements or anything like that. It was far too managed. It was all choreographed and it was all about getting a six, seven, eight minute package for the 10 o'clock news. You had to get a clip in with the SNP. You had to get a clip in with Plaid, even if they'd made no news that day. But it had to be there. It was formulaic. I'd much prefer a story where a minister says something stupid and we have to go chasing after him that day and try and actually get to the bottom of it, find out what actually is going on. That's news. 
the rest of it's just a drama. It's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, the life of the country hangs in the balance sometimes. And yet the, the, the stories that kind of make the headlines, they are gossipy. I mean, I think it's something like Plebgate, for example, you know, where Andrew Mitchell, who was a minister for the Tories, may or may not have called someone a pleb. Went on for years. And that was really just sort of he said, she said nonsense, wasn't it? But people there. love it. I was there at the time. And I'm told he said it. I'm told, I'm told he's told the <laughs> copper a pleb. And I'm told it by the copper he's supposed to have told it by. But, you know, who knows? There's strange things like our present Prime Minister. I can remember going round to doing an interview with Theresa May at just after nine on a wet Thursday evening. I don't even know what the story was about. It could well have been a prison break or something like that. So she was Home Secretary then? She was Home Secretary at the time. So I get round at nine o'clock. I need this clip for the 10 o'clock news. I'm standing all set up, ready in the Home Office, and I get a message down. Um, oh, the Home Secretary can't come and do the interview at the moment. Her special advisor is still at dinner, and she can't talk until her special advisor's back. And when you look at how the Brexit negotiations are going now, you think, I wonder if the special advisor's making the decisions or the Prime Minister is. Because at the time as Home Secretary, she didn't seem to be able to make the decisions without a um, special advisor standing there. Did you ever, though, encounter a real conviction politician who had gone somewhere? I mean, it's one thing sort of being a backbencher. Momolem. Without a doubt. I can remember, again, being at a Labour Party conference, and I think it was Blair and her fell out when Blair mentioned her in a speech and she got a standing ovation. Mm. And she wasn't even in the hole. Mo was one of the good people, without a doubt. But if you have to go back, you know, 20 years to find someone who is universally kind of loved, that's a bit of a dabbing indictment of the people who are in politics, isn't it? Yep. You're a bit of a news junkie, aren't you? You had you had BBC Parliament on when I came round to your house this afternoon. A little bit. I miss it a bit. Miss it a little bit. What do you miss? The exhilaration. That when you get a big story. Like, I did a few other stories apart from politics in that one story that affected me quite deeply was the Millie Dowler story. Mm-hmm. It's probably true to say that I broke that story for the BBC. Which part of it? The disappearance. It was a Friday and in politics. We tend to work a four-day week, which is Monday to Thursday. And I was at home. And my daughter came home from school at midday because school was breaking up. And she said, Dad, a girl from our school's disappeared. Mm. So I rang the office and said, the 14-year-old girl's gone missing from Weybridge. Weybridge is quite up up across the area. It's not the sort of thing that happens. Oh, yeah, 14 year old girls go missing all the time. Don't worry about it. Okay. Seven o'clock at night, I got a phone call. That story you rung us in on the Met have just rung us. Um, could you nip to um, a local police station and do an interview with a copper and any chance of doing a reconstruction of the way she might have walked home? We're sending a camera crew to you now. That was the start. We led on that story for six weeks and I teamed up with a reporter called Clarence Mitchell and we led the bulletins for six weeks and we were there from the beginning to the end and the sad thing about it was that Millie was actually a mentor 
one of my daughter's mentors at school. Hmm. So it was quite, that was quite close and quite effective. But again, and that's, I, I built a personal relationship up with the police on that story. What about her we, parents? Because presumably part of it was being outside their house. <sighs> yeah. That I did find quite tricky and slightly intrusive, but... I mean, it's not like a politician who stepped out of line, is it? They're in the public eye no. for reasons they do not want to be. And yet at the same time, they need the media to be there to get their message out. I actually met Millie's mum in that we got exclusive first usage of the famous Millie ironing shots. I don't know if you remember mm. them. And because we built up a relationship with the police that were doing the investigation and that we were the one team that stayed at ITN and Sky both kept busting in sort of their high-profile reporters and producers, whereas Clarence and myself stuck with it, the story from day one. So we had a relationship built up within the local area, and being local, it helped. But Millie's mum wouldn't let the tape that she had out of her hand. So we actually took an edit suite to a local police station, and Millie's mum brought the tape in and we copied it there and then. You wouldn't let it out of her hand because it was, it was a memory the, she had of her daughter? It was the last memories she had of her daughter. Yeah, that's such a difficult thing to negotiate, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I must admit, when they found Millie's body and we were all there, it was the only time I've ever cried on a story. But that was because my daughter was virtually the same age and mm. Millie had been a mentor... And it just, I, I vowed that I'd never get as close to a story ever again. And that compassion is sometimes what's missing, isn't it? When people try and do the gobby doorstep, isn't it? It's it, Actually, it's, it's if people are going through a very difficult emotional time, even if they're senior politicians, you've, you've got, got to, to judge when, it. You've got to know when to stop. You've got to know when to stop. Um, Which is when? Is it people's personal lives? Is that the thing that's... No. No, because if you're in, if you're in the public eye, you, all right, there's certain like illness and stuff like that you wouldn't go into, but to be quite, if they've got caught playing away from home and they've got a wife and two kids at home and they're in the public eye, that's sorry. If you're in the public eye. You put yourself there. So if you were still on the beat now, you'd be standing outside Boris's home, would you, shouting at him? I've done that before. <laughs> I've done that before. I could, I could actually remember being outside Boris's house many years ago when I think it was his affair with Pe- Petronella Wyatt mm. came to the, and We were all out there and there was a gaggle of us. It was the one when he leapt over the back fence and then came jogging in through the front door. And a young lady, or a young mum, shouted across the road to us push, while she was pushing her pram, why don't you leave him alone? I said, because he's married and got two kids and has been shagging someone else. That's why. He put himself up there. You know, but Boris, is, Boris has never done anything that he didn't mean to do. So he's, he's not the clown that he likes to make out he is. I can remember a story with Boris. I think it was his second go at being like the mayor when I was with a camp. We'd been sent to spend a day with Boris, walking around London virtually. 
and we were nearing the end of the day and my cameraman was really tired. Those cameras are heavy. So he said, can I take the camera down? I said, yeah, we've got enough. We've got plenty. We just walked to the end of the road, it'll be fine. We've turned the corner and we've come into a big council estate. And Boris just turned to me and he said, do people really live like this? <laughs> and I looked at the cameraman and the cameraman just shook his head. And I thought, yeah, he done me again, Boris. You know that we didn't have the camera running. Mm. So Boris has never said anything he doesn't mean to say. But but those are the minutes you're looking out for. Those are the minutes you wish you had the camera running. That's the one I kicked myself all the way home for. <laughs> We've said it now. <laughs> but, you know, you win some, you lose some. You, you're not going to win everything. So were you always is the trick to always, what, keep the mic on, even when you say it's off? Keep the camera on, even when you say it's not? Just in No, case? You, you never trick, you, I'd never trick anyone to say the camera's off when it's on. But you could argue in politics it's fair game. It's those off-the-record no, moments. No, no, that's not fair. Well, there was the it's, bit, wasn't there, with Ken Livingston and Boris Johnson having an argument in the lift at LBC? Do you remember that? Yeah, but no one had said the microphone was off. No, no one said there was a microphone at all. Right. Yeah. So that's fair enough. Yeah. What about the politicians that don't make such a good account of themselves on camera? You know, Gordon Brown followed Tony Blair. I felt sorry for Gordon because I didn't think Gordon could control his temper. I can remember being in Downing Street with Nick Robinson. And Nick had been in the room doing the interview with Gordon. When Gordon stormed out, I can't remember the precise words, but I think it was something about Nick's parentage. Wow. <laughs> because he'd been, he didn't have any. Because he'd, yes. <laughs> because he'd been irked by a question. He'd been irked. And I, I sort of waited and Nick came out and Brown eventually went back in to do the next interview. I said, Nick, I said... um. I think you upset him. And he went, yeah, I think I probably did. But Brown couldn't control himself. But he knew enough to get out of the room before it exploded. I've seen a few of them do it. Cameron once exploded in Afghanistan. Not to me, but to someone that told me about it. We'd all gone out there on a trip... Cameron was supposed to go up to the front line with a helicopter. One of the camera crews was going to go up with him, get a few shots, come back. They'd make it on every news piece in the country. Unfortunately, there'd been a kidnapping of a British soldier at the time, so all the helicopters were out looking for him. And Cameron got the ump because he didn't have a camera to go up to the front line. But his minders told him it wasn't going to happen, and that was that. I mean, that's an interesting one, isn't it, going to a war zone? Because then you really are, yes, you're reporting on something that happened, and, and yes, all media is managed to an extent, but that, that's the stuff that gets looked back on in the future as, as propaganda of the time, isn't you're it? You're in a total bubble. The only chance you've got is on the, st on the plane on the way home. And it's not one for the producers, it's one for the correspondents. But on the plane on the way home, when Cameron comes back and decides to chat to people, and he's a bit knackered, you might get a story out of that. The rest of it's propaganda. Do you think the fact that you talk in a more earthy way, the fact that your background is clearly not, you know, you didn't go to Eton, do you think that helped? Yeah, without a doubt. Why? I think they felt perhaps they couldn't bullshit me quite as easily. 
perhaps it was a bit too... I was a bit too straight for a lot of them. I was certainly a bit too straight for a lot of the BBC and it took a long time for the BBC to start taking the shouts, seriously. And it wasn't until sort of Andy Marr and Nick Robinson came along that we started using them. Oh, so you, for years you'd been shouting at politicians oh, and they yeah, haven't been the news. Yeah, <laughs> but like, I think Andy took the deferentialness away from... We've only got to watch Marr on Sunday to see that he's taken the deferential it's away from that a lot now whereas when it was frost it was a lot more deferential and actually that's the trend that goes on isn't it with the, the sort of current slightly younger generation of political correspondents coming through people like chris mason that, that informality chris oh chris is brilliant but again chris has got a regional voice mm. and it works but the, the informality of it it's getting less and less deferential what was the politician that said we work for you well then they're answerable to you they're answerable to us do you think it's a problem that there aren't too many people in the BBC, for example, who sound like you? Yes. Is the BBC racist or sexist? Absolutely not. Does it discriminate against class? Absolutely. You look at the way the BBC employs people on work experience, or certainly did. I don't know many people that came from the background that I came from that could do a year's work experience, not get paid and not know whether they got a job at the end of it. Mm. And News 24 gave me my big breaks. But in a way, it's worse than the way that news is done, in that you used to be able to craft a piece for the 1 o'clock, the 6 o'clock, or as it was in the old days, the 9 o'clock news. Now you're looking for a story for the next 30 seconds. Mm. One of the stories that I do remember from the early days of the News Channel in that um, Hugh Edwards was then the political editor of um, the BBC News 24. and But they'd asked Hugh to do a package for the 9 o'clock news so he wasn't working for the News Channel at that time. And I, I was at, in the office and I just took a phone call from this guy who didn't actually say who he was and said, uh, can I speak to Hugh Edwards, please? I don't really understand why, but the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. And I said, he's not here at the moment. Can I help? I, I really do need to speak to him. This was just a cold call that came in? Cold call that came into the office. And I just felt, I've got to go and get Hugh. Hugh's not going to be happy, but I've got to go and get him. We need to get, he needs to talk to this person. So I walked out of the edit suite, Hugh's, halfway through the edit for the nine o'clock news. And I said, Hugh, there's a phone call. Oh, not now, not now. I said, no, Hugh, you need to take this call. I don't know why you need to take it, but you need to take it. So it was just instinct? Did the caller sound... It was literally that the hairs on the back of my neck had stood on end. But what, I mean, did the caller sound emotional or... Nope. Urgent, but I'd never, and I'd never heard this voice before. Mm -hmm. Hugh came off the phone and said... Get me to the news news camera now. We need to go on air. And it was the start of the Ron Davis story. Remind me. When he got caught um, allegedly on Clapham Common in a compromising position, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he was a minister. He was a minister at the time. I think he was Welsh. I think he was Secretary of State for Wales at the time. I must say, when you said Ron Davis, the two words that flashed into my head were sex and Welsh. That's all I could remember. <laughs> that was the story. <laughs> yeah. That's what it gets distilled down to, isn't it? So was he calling with a mea culpa then? Yes. 
Right. He was calling Before the to was published, explain yeah. to Hugh yeah. what had actually happened. Because Hugh was, as you know, Welsh, and I think there was, I think they knew each other. Mm-hmm. And again, it was probably a personal relationship thing. But to this day, I still don't understand why the hairs on the back of my head stood up on it. But they did. When you watched other people trying to do what you did so well, what were they getting wrong? They didn't have the instinct. I think there is a major problem with correspondents doing shouts. They have got to have the patronage of those politicians. I actually upset Cameron once. We were, again, another one at conference. Cameron had sent Samantha to watch the Tories play the journalists at the football match. He'd sent her with one of the minders that always went everywhere. And I just thought I'd be a little bit cheeky. So at half-time, the Tories, I think, were losing 5-0 to the journalists at the time. And also, Cameron wasn't doing very well in the polls either for the government. So I just sidled up to Cameron's wife and I said, "Um, so what do you think then? So she said, "Um, well, we're not doing very well at the moment. Maybe we'll do better in the second half. It's quite nice. It was useful for a package that yeah. night. <laughs> I met Cameron the week after conference. He went absolutely potty at me. Because his wife wasn't on official duty? He reckons she was quoted out of context. I said, no, David. We said she was at a football match and we said she was commenting on the score of the game. I said, and anyway, she's over 21. She should know what she's doing. But did he feel that you'd breached uh, an unwritten rule there? Yeah. She was at a public event with government minders. If they can't look after her, that's their fault. The irrepressible Paul Lambert. And for any politicians listening, Alex Fox will be talking BDSM after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for your slick, sensual dose of sloppy fun. It's the foxhole with Alex Fox. It's the sex bit. How are you, Alex? Welcome to the school of hard fox, Ollie. (laughs) That's better. I'm great, thank you. I completed the kinkiest 10k that I have ever jogged uh, with secret London runs uh, on a sex-themed 10-kilometre run. Oh, God, that sounds arduous. Seriously, like the idea of competing in any kind of organised running fills me with horror anyway. The idea I might even have to touch upon ideas of sex whilst doing that. Well, this was not in any way competitive. So it's a run where you go on a tour around historic sites that have a sexual connection in London. So it's essentially a tour that that you jog along. It begins on Cock Lane, uh, which was London's official red light district that opened in 1240 uh, and then became excessively popular in 1348 when Londoners were led to believe that sex with a prostitute could guarantee them immunity from the Black Death. So it's quite the sales pitch, isn't it? Well, it would keep you amused for the evening. 
I also learnt about some of London's most famous sex workers through the ages, one of whom was called Clarice Le Clatterbollock. <laughs> if you wanted to be historically thwacked in the testicles, then she was the woman to go to. Uh, there was also Pris Fotheringham, who coined a particular activity known as chucking, where to get a little bit of extra cash from her gash, she would lay down on her back with her legs in the air, spread herself so that she was uh, appropriately gaping, uh, and challenge people to chuck coins into a chuff. And allegedly she could fit in 16 half crowns and an entire bottle of red wine. That would liven up the summer fate, wouldn't it? <laughs> On which uh, we segue effortlessly into our sex question of the week. It is from man fan Holly, who says, Alex, my boyfriend has recently expressed an interest in being dominated by me and worshipping me. We've spoken about it a few times, and I know he doesn't like pain or necessarily degradation, which most guides tend to focus on. I'm looking forward to giving this a go, but I'd like some tips and advice. Okay, so how do you dominate a man without pain or too much degradation? I love this question. Oh, good. Okay. I absolutely love it because so often when we talk about submissive and dominant power dynamics, the assumption is that someone will uh, want to receive pain mm. or be humiliated. I mean, just to take the most kind of vanilla example, I suppose simply being on top is a question of power, isn't it? It's just extremes of that, isn't it, really? Well, actually, a great way to start with experimenting with this kind of dynamic where the woman is in charge, um, but if you want to make that more gentle and you don't want to involve uh, whipping and caning and spanking or withering comments, then just slightly exacerbating and exaggerating what would usually be considered quite a vanilla sex move, like the woman being on top, you can just change your attitude and your approach to that ever so slightly and it can make a huge amount of difference to the sexual experience you have. So if Holly, our listener here, got on top and then encouraged her partner to uh, be really reverent about her body and treat her like a goddess, then you can see how that would just set up a very different flavour mm. to the same old sexual experience that they'd been having. And um, she hints at that, worshipping rather than degradation, yeah. Yeah, I think um, rather than him being made to feel like some kind of throwaway, disgusting, disgraceful little weasel, which mm. Admittedly, lots of people are into. I mean, a lot of listeners just got a hard on. Placing the focus more on him being really reverent towards her and treating like her like a queen who accepts his attentions with grace mm. and focusing on things like reward and taking joy in servitude rather than punishment and, and shouting at somebody. I think that is the way to go. I should clarify that often when uh, we talk about um, S&M servitude, which is one person being sort of a slave to another or, or providing a service to them, attending to their needs, spoiling them, pampering them. There is an assumption that if a man is doing that in a sexual context then he must be kind of sissified. You yeah, know? isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. Like it, almost it emasculated. emasculating. Yes, yeah. exactly. You took the word straight out of my mouth. Well, there's nothing inherently no. unmasculine about no. wanting to worship the lady that you're having not sex with. Not at all. If that's not your kind of thing, you can absolutely still praise somebody, still serve them in that way, whilst 
retaining a strong sense of your own masculinity. Okay, so let me make some practical suggestions of things they might want to experiment with with this kind of gentle, reverent dynamic mm-hmm. that they want to set up. Um, I spoke to one of my pals, Mistress Slide, who is a professional dominatrix, and she said, for a start, as ever, these things start with a little chat about what would excite them both about this scenario. And it's really important as well as determining what being submissive might mean to him and what his fantasies are, Holly should also consider what she would enjoy. She shouldn't just go through Mm. with anything for the sake of pleasing him. It's often assumed that if one person is submissive that they're just going to obey the wishes of the dominant person. But there is such a phenomenon called topping from the bottom where the submissive person would actually be calling the shots because the dominant person is trying to fulfill that dominant role mm. in order to please them. Mm. Um, it's a difficult concept to try and summarise. Yeah, do, no, I see how the issue I mean? arises. Although she does say in her letter, this lady, doesn't she, that she is looking forward to giving this a go. Although I suppose even that terminology, giving it a go, it's one thing to do it once, isn't it? She probably doesn't want to change her sexual relationship forever in this way. Well, yeah, that's one thing that they should ascertain. How often do they want to indulge in this kind of uh, power play? Is this something that will be an occasional treat? Or is it a relationship that they want to work upon long term and and maybe build it up and to manage their expectations? Sometimes once you've gone down this road, it's hard actually to then have a conversation where she says, I'd like you to dominate me. I mean, she might not be into that at all. But if she was, if she's played the dominant one, if you like, it's almost difficult to re-establish back to a you know, a calibration in the middle. I don't think that's impossible. Plenty of people in this world identify as switches uh, where they will switch between being dominant or submissive uh, according to the situation. Mm. If uh, Holly's partner views this as the beginning of um, a dynamic that's going to grow, whereas she sees it as something they're just dipping in their toe, Mm. Mm. uh, that's something that they'll need to um, make sure that they're on the same page about. And toe dipping is a whole different fetish, as we've discussed. (laughs) Well, actually, foot massage and leg worship is a really good place to start here you don't have to be a foot fetishist uh, in order to get on your knees respectfully uh, and focus your attentions on pleasuring your partner in a way that doesn't necessarily bring physical pleasure to you it's a very Mm. giving thing to do that it's a very reverent very praising thing it's something that uh, someone in a position of power uh, who you admire greatly it's a great gift to give them and also actually just the very act I suppose of your genitalia being that little bit more distant from theirs means there's an element of delayed gratification in it as well. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's about your hands and their feet. Precisely. It's a submissive position to be in. Yeah. You're literally kneeling before somebody, you're at their feet, and you're focusing your uh, attentions on doing something that is solely for the pleasure of their souls. Pun intended. So, so that might be a, a good place <laughs> to start. Um, if Holly's got some beautiful shoes, then perhaps her partner might like to shine them. Um, moving more widely into the realms of clothing, in fact... Um, one of the suggestions that came up when I was brainstorming this was that if they're into perhaps uh, outfits, latex, PVC, a really lovely ritual in which he could admire and uh, give praise to her body would be for her to dress up in something shiny like a PVC catsuit and for him to spend the time slowly buffing it. Mm -hmm. So again, he is in a position where he is serving her. He's a slave if you want. But it's all about admiration. It's not about admonishment. 
punishment. He's not being ordered to do something and told that he's a he's a terrible little rat if he doesn't. Mm. It's about him saying, I adore you and admire you so much that I want to focus on making your entire body polished and shiny. And you're saving on laundry bills and visits <laughs> to the chiropodist. Uh, yeah, exactly. And again, speaking of laundry... A really easy way of creating a mood where one person is very much in charge of the other. Is this going to involve dryer balls? Well, how about if Holly is clothed and her partner is completely naked? Mm. That automatically puts him in a more submissive position and one of slight vulnerability, but it doesn't necessarily have to be humiliating. Mm. Um, but lots of people have never have never played with that. It's called CFNM clothed female naked male it's a whole separate fetish in fact that some people really dig but um just getting him to undress and being completely naked while she's completely clothed could be an instantaneous and very easily achievable way of experimenting in this domain other things they could try are light bondage um, and making him wait. That doesn't have to involve pain. Mm. Just because somebody's tied up doesn't mean that you have to spank them. Uh, you can just wank them <laughs> if you want. And I suppose that goes hand in hand, <laughs> pardon the pun, with the, what did you call it, CM. Uh, CFNM, yeah, yeah. If he's completely naked and tied down, that is very much putting Holly in a position of power, but it doesn't have to involve degradation. It's completely up to her when he gets touched and where, isn't it? Well, if they want to take this to the next level, then they could explore the concept of uh, orgasm denial and orgasm control. Mm. Uh, we've spoken in the past about edging, about either bringing yourself or somebody else very close. So you're just teetering on the edge of climax and then slowing things down. Now, not only can that be a way of uh, learning to control your own orgasm, if you're a guy who's maybe uh, concerned about coming too fast or building up a particularly potent orgasm, if, if that's your bag, um, but doing that to somebody else is also a way of exerting control mm. without hurting them, without humiliating them. So that's a great place to experiment. And Holly mentions in her question she's done some reading around this and she keeps coming across pain and degradation in the guides she's reading. Are there other books you could recommend? A lot of books dealing with BDSM will necessarily look at things like caning and paining and, and humiliation but there are plenty out there that have lots of other creative ideas as well. There's one book that's actually quite old but it has a lot of really down-to-earth ways to figure out what sort of dom sub relationship you want. What it's kind the of Reader's co- Digest Companion <laughs> <laughs> to Subdom Relationship, published in 1942. Well, it's actually called Dear Raven and Joshua. Okay. Uh, questions and answers about master and slave relationships. To give a bit of a warning here, this is about very involved dom-sub relationships. Um, it's about people who really want to do this full time. But you can read it bearing that in mind and just pulling out some of the more creative ideas. Mm-hmm. And going from reading to writing, and speaking of creativity, of course I asked my wonderful friend Master Dominic, my male dominant friend here, if he had any ideas. Uh, and he said a particularly creative challenge he likes to set for his clients who want him to be the one in charge but without them going away with a, a stinging arse, uh, is that he asks them to handwrite a sonnet about why he is a magnificent, wondrous person, mm. uh, then to read it out loud to him, and then he gives them marks uh, and rewards them for their creativity. Rewarding like that, giving somebody praise and 
some kind of remuneration for their service is a re- that can be a really lovely thing so if holly's partner it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual either if holly's partner wants to pay attention to making her the perfect cup of coffee mm. or cooking Somebody a beautiful could reward meal all week long for isn't her. it yeah like a toddler star chart <laughs> The well, end of the week, I will dominate Some people do do you. that. Yeah. Some people in DS relationships have star charts and they'll give gold stars for, for the services uh, provided, whether that's cleaning the house or going down on them beautifully. Mm. And then there are rewards, which might be the permission to suck on mistress's nipple for two minutes. Mm. Lots of people have a lot of fun, actually, with that idea of training someone to do a task or someone practicing getting really good at something to please their mistress that could be uh learning how to finger her to within an inch of her life um or it might just be something as simple as uh remembering all the things that she needs in her handbag in the morning getting that perfectly right for her this one of the loveliest things about this kind of very kind caring compassionate ds relationship uh, is that it can extend beyond the bedroom into the rest of their lives if they want to and it can be like a really sweet, caring thing. Which is nice to hear about because you don't often, do you? Because you don't, no. Yeah. A lot of the concentration in um, BDSM conversations is about punishment and degradation. And those things are absolutely fine if that's something you want to indulge in. But you do not have to. As with any sexual experience, take what floats your boat and leave the rest in the ocean. Well, if you send a question through to Alex to answer on the show, degradation is the furthest thing from our mind. It's, <laughs> it's all reward. And you can do that by visiting our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, uh, and clicking on feedback. Also, Alex, people should follow you on Instagram and Twitter. Yes, please do. I'm at Alex Fox, A-L-I-X, and then Fox like the animal. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new Manbassador. It's Michael who says, Ollie, please consider me for the small Northamptonshire village of West Haddon. I've listened to every episode you've done and have donated to the show ever since you first asked for a beer, though I don't spend much because between you, Richard Herring and Stuart Goldsmith, I'm stretched. Well, you have got to work out your podcast supporting budget as part of your household finances, Michael, as we all know. Uh, I'd buy you all a real drink if I saw you, Michael continues, but I'd be too scared to talk to Alex. She's not scary. When, when I last saw her, she was wearing burger and fries earrings. But anyway, congratulations, Michael. I hereby appoint you Manbassador for the highly contested region of West Haddon. Our music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.